we start John chapter 7 today. Open up. Does it feel good to move on a chapter? The Word of our God. We'll be doing 1 through 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he wants to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious Father, for as much as our whole salvation depends upon our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and apprehend your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we might rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our culture, our time, our place is in some ways very similar to the culture, time, and place of Jesus. You might be going, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Hang with me for just a moment. We have, we have an election coming up. And what that means in part is that there are two groups of people who each think that they know what the most pressing issues are and have the answers. And that those who are on the other side have no idea what the real problems are or what the real issues are. Back in Jesus' day, wasn't two parties, essentially three parties. You had the Pharisees, who were sort of the fundamentalists of the day. You had the Sadducees, which were the theological liberals of the day. But you also had the Herodians, who were the political party of the day, who were like, yay Rome. Everyone else was like, boo Rome. They were, yay Rome. Okay, you got it. There it is, in a heartbeat. Jesus, in many ways, was being asked to support one of those three parties to kind of cast his law in with one of them. Are you with us, or are you not with us? Let's go back to today. It's the same way. Both sides, 
in this great divide within our country, seek at times anyway, not always, but at times, to sort of use Jesus to support their view of things. But what they don't get is that Jesus, it's not about whether Jesus is on their side. The real issue is whether or not they are on Jesus' side. What they don't understand is that Jesus, in many ways, as, as the title of this sermon is, Contra Mundum, against the world. You see, they think Jesus is all for them, for the world. But there is a profound sense in which he is against the world. And that's really at the center of what's going on within this text this morning in the life of Jesus. The big idea is that Jesus and his agenda stand starkly opposed to the world. The first thing I want us to take note of as we look at this passage is that Jesus marches to a different drum. The drumbeat of obedience, not the drumbeat of success or security. You see, it mentions sometime after this, meaning the events of what happened in the synagogue as Jesus preached the sermon basically about being the bread of life and where he exploded, so to speak, that idea that salvation comes through him who is the bread of life, that this bread of life must be broken so that people can have salvation months later. Jesus is still in Galilee. He's still, as it says, walking through Galilee, pointing to the type of ministry he had. He had an itinerant sort of ministry. He didn't have a church. In many ways, he was sort of like George Whitfield during the, uh, the Great Awakening. He's traveling everywhere. That was Jesus' ministry. He would go from town to town, and he would preach in their synagogues. He would teach in the mountains and the hillsides. That was his ministry. John makes note that during this time of the Galilean ministry, he stays away from Judea, particularly because of the fact of what was going on in Judea. That there were those who wanted to take his life because he had said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. So, what happens is that there's a festival approaching. In this case, it's the festival of booths or tabernacles. It's drawing near. It's about six months after the Passover, which was the last time we had Jesus in, uh, in Jerusalem. So this is about six months later. It's approaching. And for those of you who don't really understand this idea of, of uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, we heard a little bit about it from Leviticus. And from Leviticus, we learned, first off, that it is a required festival. This was one of the times that every good Jewish man was required to go to Jerusalem to participate in the Sabbaths and to make the offerings. When they went to Jerusalem, what they would do is they would imitate, on a scale, a smaller scale anyway, life in the wilderness, remembering the years that God led his people, 40 years through the wilderness. And so they would take branches and leaves and build these little tents or lean-tos. And people who lived in Jerusalem already would go up on their roofs, you know, because they're like the Santa Fe-style houses here with flat roofs, okay? And they would build these little shelters, and instead of sleeping in their cozy bed, they would sleep on the ground on mats in these lean-tos and tents, remembering the hardship of the people of Israel, but also remembering, and that's the whole point of this feast, the faithfulness of God. 
that God was the one who provided water from a rock. That God was the one who provided manna from heaven each day, except on the Sabbath, but twice as much on the day before the Sabbath. That God was the one who, as we're going to see later on in this chapter, also through the pillar of cloud and fire, guided them through the wilderness. The incredible provision of God. That was what they were going to celebrate. So, we don't have a concept of that in some ways. I mean, unless you've gone, done a family camping trip for a week, okay? But throw in some Jesus music. You know, Amy used to go to, was it Jesus Fest? Creation. I can't remember. There's a couple of these festivals, but usually they're not a whole week. They're probably maybe four or five days. But yeah, you know, you set up the tent, you go to the porta potty, and you listen to Jesus music all day, you know? Worship and camping. That's basically the, the, the Feast of the Tabernacles. You camp out, you go to worship, okay? Now, what happened, so to speak, and what prior to this is that it comes on the heels of the grape and olive harvest. So again, you have another taste of God's amazing provision in their life. Now, trouble number one, brothers. It's a pretty ordinary word, right? Well, as some commentators note, and some people who don't want Mary to have children, aside from Jesus, that the word brothers can mean in Hebrew, they, they can use it for extended family, cousins, even farther out sort of relatives. But here's the problem. Usually when it's used that way, at least in Scripture, it's because you're addressing somebody, because you want to express the, the common heritage and the unity that we have. And so someone will say, brothers, so to speak. It's not just talking about and brothers. There is a Greek word for cousin. I'm sure John knew it. Certainly the Holy Spirit knew it. But clearly the Apostle Paul knew it because we saw that in Colossians chapter 4 when he offers his greetings and he mentions Barnabas, cousin, sorry, yeah, cousin. Mark was the cousin. Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. See, I knew it's in there somewhere. Okay, so this is Jesus' real brothers, blood brothers, not cousins, not extended family, you know, cousins four time removed, something like that, not from the same tribe, okay, brothers. His immediate family is speaking to him. And what we see very quickly is that his brothers are not on the same page as Jesus. They're telling him to go, okay, this is your big opportunity, Jesus. We've been watching you. And most likely they sat in the synagogue in Capernaum and listened to a sermon. So keep that in mind. We know that so many of these disciples of yours have left. What you need to do, essentially, is go down to Jerusalem for this big festival when everyone's going to be there. And you need, if you really want to be a public figure, you need to do something spectacular and amazing. If you want success, Jesus, you need to go down there. And you need to do something big and to gather the people. That's essentially what they're saying to him. What we have to keep in mind 
is that they didn't believe in Jesus, as the text says. They had not placed their faith in him. Their view of Messiah was probably very similar to what we saw of those right after the feeding of the 5,000. They wanted to make him king. And so they're seeing this not as Jesus, the Savior, the bread of life who, who must be broken for his people. What they really want to see is Jesus, the Messiah, who goes to Rome, gathers an army, and kicks Rome. Uh, sorry, goes to Jerusalem, gathers the army, and gets Rome out of town. That most likely is what they're thinking of, a worldly king. They have an agenda that is very different from the Father's agenda. Now, before we're too hard on these guys, let's remember one thing. That while they do not yet believe, there would come a time in which they would. For instance, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we see that the disciples were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So at some point, after his death and resurrection, the brothers are sovereignly drawn to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. We see it as well in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, when he says, Then Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Note the graciousness there. James is one of these brothers who's basically making fun of Jesus. And yet, before he even appears to the disciples as a whole, okay, we keep in mind that he appeared to um, uh, some of them initially, but you know, individually, he goes to his blood brother, half-brother, James, who had doubted. Sort of almost like what happens with Paul, the one who least expected it. Jesus shows up and shows himself to him. The graciousness of that should not be lost on us as we go through this. Now remember, as I said, they were living in Capernaum, they had probably been there and heard the Bread of Life sermon that we saw in most of chapter 6, but they missed the point. They were probably amongst those who were grumbling and arguing amongst themselves as Jesus went through that sermon. And he clarifies something to them. He says that my time has not yet come. And now he sets himself apart from them, basically saying, for you, any old time will do. Why is that? This is similar, but not identical, to when Mary approached Jesus at the wedding in Cana. Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. And in John's gospel, hour usually refers to the time of Jesus' death. The hour of his death has not arrived. This is, he's not saying, my, my time of death has not arrived, therefore I'm not going to Jerusalem. It has more this idea of the appointed time. And so not only has the Father, through Leviticus, commanded that Jesus must go to the feast, but Jesus is aware of when the Father tells him to go to the feast, that not any old time will do, that he needs to arrive at a particular, specific time. And Jesus is amazingly aware of this. It's not sort of, he's not like us. When we just want to have lunch together or have someone over for dinner and you kind of look at the schedule and see what works for both parties. 
Okay, That's not what Jesus does. Let's see. Let's look at my other responsibilities. And I see that uh, between one and two, I can depart for Jerusalem. That's not the idea. The idea is the Father instructs him when he is to depart for Jerusalem for this festival. So, we see, first off, that Jesus heeds the counsel that we find in verse 1 of Psalm 1. Because remember, his brothers do not believe, his brothers are essentially scoffing or scorning at him. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Jesus doesn't listen to them. He doesn't set his agenda by the desires of those around him, particularly those who don't believe in, in him and what he's doing. He watches to the drumbeat of the Father's will, obedience, not other people's agenda. Now let's think about this for a moment. Most of us have experienced some level of disappointment with God. I mean, there's a reason why Philip Yancey's book was so popular, right? I'm not sure I'm excited about his answers to that particular question. However, most of us have experienced at some point disappointment. Why? The bottom line is that our disappointment is usually because God's ways are perfect. His love is steadfast. The problem tends to be the fact that we want God to fulfill our agenda. That we're not on board with his agenda in that particular instance. But we want him to be on board with our agenda. And so essentially we're treating God as though he's sort of the, we put the request in, pull the lever, and we get the candy that we want. Okay? The candy machine God. The vendor machine God. That's usually where our disappointment comes from. We don't entrust ourselves to him. But we seek to get him on our side. Just like the Pharisees wanted to. Just like the Sadducees wanted to. Just like the Herodians wanted to. We want God on our side instead of being on his side. That's usually most of our disappointment. Not all of it, but most of it. But we see that Jesus concerned himself with the Father's will, not success as the world defined it, not security, not spectacle. Secondly, I want us to see, I want us to get to the heart of this, is that Jesus witnesses about the wickedness of the world. R.C. Sproul mentions that when he tells his students what to look for in Scripture, he says, look for the drama. Where's the drama? That's going to drive what's going on. Here's the drama. It's set up by the opposition to Jesus and his message. The reality that Jesus is the new temple. The reality that Jesus is the new manna from heaven. The reality that Jesus is greater than Moses, that Jesus is Jacob's ladder. All of these things, this, these things drive the drama, this conflict. See, remember, 
It mentions here again, but we saw it earlier, the Jewish leaders. And I'll insert that word because that's really what's going on. It wasn't your average guy in the street. But when John is using the Jews, he's referring typically to the Jewish leaders. So John, the Jewish Christian, is not anti-Semitic. Okay? So he says that they're trying to kill him. We remember that many disciples had abandoned him in Galilee because he did not fulfill their agenda. And Jesus notes, the world hates me. Now, John uses the word world in two different ways in his gospel. There's one way when he speaks about God's love for the world and that idea of Jew and Gentile. This is not that one. When he speaks about his conflict with the world, he's speaking more in terms of that understanding of the world as a system that is diametrically opposed and in rebellion to God. A world that we see in places like Ephesians chapter 2 that is under the influence and authority, so to speak, of the prince of the power of the air, the evil one, whose will they accomplish. Okay? Because it appeals to the power of their flesh. And so when Jesus is talking here about the world hating him, He's talking about the world apart from God precisely because he is God. Now, let's pause for a second. You will meet people who don't believe in Jesus that have some level of acceptance of Jesus. He's a great teacher. He's this. He's that. And so we, we can pause and we can ask, what's going on here? And what I believe is going on in those instances is that there is somebody who has created Jesus in their own image. And so the Jesus of the liberal scholar is sort of like the hippie Jesus. Yeah, man, chill out. Just let's all be at peace with one another. So sort of, you know, we, we see this in other ways. The surfer Jesus. I don't know why anyone decided they would have the poster of the surfer Jesus, but they did. That is part of what we do. Instead of receiving God as he reveals himself in the scriptures, we are so prone to making him in our own image. If we're a pacifist, we see Jesus as the pacifist. We see Jesus how we want to see him apart from the grace of God. And that's what a lot of people do. They see a Jesus that is pleasing to them, and they ignore the biblical Jesus, the parts of the biblical Jesus that just don't jive with how they want Jesus. So, why is it that the world hates him? Jesus says, because I testify that its works are evil. You see, that's the thing about the gospel. To declare the love of God for sinners, you must declare that they are sinners. To declare that they are to be saved, you have to declare from what they are being saved and why they need to be saved from it. And so when Jesus speaks 
clearly enough that people are convicted of their sin and don't like it. They don't appreciate it. I mean, who here likes being told they're wrong? Anybody? Anybody? Come on. Nobody, yeah. Remember, we've got the law firm of Cavallero, Cavallero, Cavallero. Except that's my personal law firm and you can't have them. Okay, so it's, it's Julian, Julian, Julian. You know, and some of you might need four. I don't know. Is it Alex, 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 and Alex? I don't, I don't know. But we all have this inner lawyer that seeks to defend us from any claim that we are wrong, that we do wrong. And when someone tries to tell us otherwise, usually we go on the attack, and that's what happens. Jesus is the walking revelation in a part that they are wrong, do wrong, and they don't like it. Why is it nobody likes the police? They catch you when you're wrong. That's what happens in certain neighborhoods anyway. So the world hates to have its sin revealed. And here's the rub. If you side with Jesus, you too will draw the world's wrath. There are a couple times in the Gospels where he says, they have hated me, and they will hate you too. We can't sort of take the white out for those who still might believe in that. You know, we, have, we still have some physical pages. You know? We can't just kind of remove that from Scripture. That is a reality that's there. Okay? And the reason his brothers, he says, the world can't hate you, had us not have the ability to hate you, is because then it would hate itself. Because they are part of the world, because of their unbelief at this point. For instance, John 12, Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided itself can stand. So, the world does not hate unbelievers. The world hates those who take the name of Jesus and stand with him. We see this all the time now. It's growing. You know, in other countries, they've experienced this for a long time. Gordon College. Up in the north shore of Boston, R.C. Sproul used to teach there a long, long time ago, among other uh, solid scholars. They're in the news right now. Want to know why? If you don't know, accreditation. Here's the weird part of it. The, the agency that accredits them academically suddenly has concerns about their behavioral standards in the, in the student handbook. Standards that have been there for generations. Suddenly, we're not happy with what you're saying about this special interest group that we care about. And so if you don't change that in a year, we will take away your accreditation as a university, a college. That seems strange, doesn't it? That an academic accreditation agency is playing moral police? They've had this largely biblical behavior standards for generations. 
and they haven't objected to the fact that there's no premarital sex that's supposed to take place on campus. When you stand with a biblical morality, you're going to catch heat. You're going to be called names. You might get sued. Understand it. That's okay. We'll talk about more that more about why. But there's something else that I think once I want to hit home as well. One sin that this text exposes in the brothers of Jesus is a mindless, heartless approach to ritual and worship. Why am I saying that? First off, let's let's go with Isaiah 29. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. His brothers are going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to partake in the feast. They're probably going to offer sacrifices. And yet, they reject that to which everything that they're doing points to. They're honoring God with their lips, but their hearts are far from God precisely because their hearts are far from their half-brother who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Their worship is displeasing to God precisely because it is an act of unbelief. And we can do the same thing at times. We are not immune to sort of just going through the motions. Instead of actively engaging and participating in what's going on in a way that says, I believe this. Yes, what we are reciting right now through the Apostles' Creed, I believe that about God. And there might be a little part where you go, I struggle with this, Jesus. Help me. Okay? But we're not just going through, well, now it's time for us to confess our sins. But I have sins to confess. God help me. Okay? Actively sort of engaging in the worship. As we sing, as we listen to sermons, we embrace Christ, we embrace his benefits, we declare it's true, which is quite contrary to what his brothers were doing. And so we see that the message of salvation from sin provokes a world that loves wickedness. Third thing, Christ overcomes the fear of the world. See, Jesus, when the time was right, he went to Jerusalem. He did not hide from those who were seeking his life, but neither did he run up and say, here I am. Kill me. Okay? This time had not come. In the temptation in the wilderness with, with, the, uh, with the evil one, he did quote from Deuteronomy 6, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so he's doing this in a way that is obedient and yet not trying to put the Father to the test by making him rescue him before his time. How was that? The text is there. He went privately. Remember our reading from Luke 2 when Jesus was, a, was about 12 and his whole family went down for the Passover? What happened? Well, they forgot about him 
Why is it they could have forgotten about him? Because they went in such a large group with extended family, with acquaintances. Half the village probably was going down together. And you're thinking, why would that sound interesting or exciting at all? And yet you think, well, there are robbers that are about. It's good to travel in numbers. It's sort of like the wagon trains back in the Old West. It was smart. And so you would travel with this extended group of people, this large body of people. And so it took a while for his parents, took him a whole day, to realize Jesus never left Jerusalem. That still happens. Not a whole day. I remember friends of ours in Florida who lived, I've told you where the church was initially. It was on a lake next to an orange grove off this dirt road. It was initially a dirt road. Uh, I think by the time Amy got there, it was paved. But it was like a, a lane and a half between two subdivisions. Our friends, Todd and Verge, lived in one of those two subdivisions. And one day, I remember at church, I'd said goodbye to Todd and Verge. They were leaving. And a few minutes later, there's Meg. Meg, what are you doing here? (laughs) They forgot their daughter. I don't know how long it would have gone on, because I called. (laughs) By the way, Meg's here. Uh, I can bring her home. Sure, not a problem. Okay? Um, It happens. Let's not be too hard on Joseph and Mary. But that it took a day? No. Because because of this large crowd. And so Jesus, instead of going with the large crowd, which would be with his brothers and with everyone else, he goes probably just with his disciples, a small group, privately. But we see that there's an emphasis here on the Jewish leaders are looking for him. They keep inquiring. They keep looking. It's not like they asked one person, hey, have you seen Jesus? No. Okay. But they keep their eyes open. They're waiting for an opportunity to identify him and where he is and possibly to have him arrested, as we'll see later on in the text. But we see that while they're dead set on finding Jesus in in a negative way, that the popular opinion amongst the people who were attending the festival was split. They're talking amongst themselves. They're having debates amongst themselves. Some are saying he's a good man. They're not saying he's the Savior. He's a good guy. He teaches well. He means well. He's a good guy. And there are other people who are very opposed to him because they believe he is leading the people astray. The Babylonian Talmud records that Jesus was killed for being a sorcerer who led people astray. That idea of Jesus leading people astray was one that the Pharisees and the rest of the Sanhedrin had, and that was part of the charges against him that were written in their records that are recorded as well in the Babylonian Talmud. Now, let's have another aside. This is, this is a whole day of asides, okay? It's amazing to me that I will occasionally hear people say, there is no evidence whatsoever outside of the Bible that Jesus existed. Really? Okay, Josephus notes his existence. But unlike the Egyptians, who usually wiped out the name of their enemies, the Jewish leaders put it in their records, and we have it in the Talmud. Not only that Jesus lived, 
but that Jesus was executed, and why from their perspective? The earthly existence of Jesus is testified to not only by people who like Jesus, but people who hated Jesus. We know Jesus existed. Why would you fabricate a guy to hate? I know I can understand making up things about someone you know that you don't like, but not to make up a whole person so you can hate him. Jesus really existed. Jesus really was put to death. It says that no one spoke openly for fear of the Jews. Again, the Jewish leaders. Things are no different. It may not be the Jewish leaders, but fear of the world silences many who claim the name of Jesus. They're afraid of what might happen, and they go silent and dumb. In a sense, they're driven into the closet. How do we overcome this fear? How? Jesus, for instance, overcame it because he knew that his time was in the Father's hands. That he came into this world in the fullness of time and he would not leave this world until the fullness of time. Precise moments. We're no different. Jesus comforts his people during the Sermon on the Mount. Fear not. Why? The numbers of your hair or your head are counted. You know? Not a sparrow falls apart from the will of the Father. Aren't you more valuable to God than a sparrow? You bear his image. And so your times are in his hands. You may not like those times, but they're in his hands. And nothing will happen to you that he does not in some way command or permit. And that's difficult because sometimes very horrible things happen to us. And that's where we have to trust the character of God with those very horrible things that happen to us. My times are in his hands. So not only that, but we see that Jesus entered dangerous space. And Jesus would do this for us, in part precisely because we didn't. That's one of the sins that he bears upon himself, is the fear of man that we've been guilty of, that led us into a disobedience of God at times. And so, he comes and enters, entered the dangerous space for us. How else? We see in Matthew 10, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. And at his time, don't fear the Romans. The worst they can do to you is kill your body. That's it. Don't stress it out. Okay? He says, rather fear him who can destroy both body and uh, soul and body in hell. Replace the fear of man with a greater fear. The fear of the one who owns it all, controls it all. The one who not only can destroy the body, but also can destroy the soul. That's the one we're to be afraid of. 
not the one who can only hurt the body. In 1 John chapter 4, we see, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. And here's the reason why. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Something is animating God's children that is very different from that which is animating the world. The spirit who gives life versus the evil one. Jesus, who dwells in us by the Spirit, is greater than the one who is in the world. And as a result, we see that He will overcome for us, that we will overcome through Him. One of the interesting things that sort of almost got ruined here today, you know, the world doesn't understand the church. They don't understand the things that we do and why we do certain things, and that's okay. We had the fire marshal in here this week, and he was poking around. Nice guy, Warren. Pray for Warren. He's a nice guy. But one of the things that I found out after the fact of talking with Warren is that he initially wanted the fire extinguisher, like, here. <laughs> and it's kind of like, you know, I was like, is he afraid I'm going to preach too much hellfire and brimstone? <laughs> Someone needs to kind of put out the fire? I don't know what's going on. It's over there now. But not understanding the idea of aesthetics. He's just thinking of safety, safety, safety. He's, there's something very different motivating him than motivating me when it comes to this building. Okay? I'm not saying he's possessed by the devil. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying he, there's something different that animates him and drives him than that which animates me and drives me. And when it comes to our conflict with the world because we're with Christ, what drives them is different than what drives us. But what drives us is bigger, better, stronger. Additionally, we have Revelation 12. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. See, that's the funny thing about that passage. They were martyrs, but they conquered. See, we don't understand sometimes. We, we can fall into that trap and lie that this earthly life is everything, and it's not. It's not. But they conquered by the blood of the Lamb the sacrificial blood of Jesus shed for sinners. So that while they thought they were, while the beast thought he exterminated them, he didn't. He just ushered them into a greater experience of their Savior than they had at that moment. And so we overcome fear, our fear of the world, by the blood of the one who overcame the world through his death and resurrection. We overcome the fear of the world precisely because we're united with Christ and filled with the Spirit who strengthens us. We have to keep going back to that. Or we become fearful because we think only of our weakness. We become timid and shy instead of recognizing, as Paul said to Timothy, that you have not received a power 
of fear or timidity or slavery, but one of power. Not Superman kind of power, but to keep you on the course kind of power. To keep you faithful kind of power. So while the world wants Jesus on their side, Jesus stands firmly by the Father and contramundum against the world as a sinful system under the influence of the evil one. He calls us to choose sides. But know this, the world hates him and his authority because it wants to live free from authority that confines its behavior and passions. If you side with Jesus, he promised that it would hate you too. But his love is greater than the love of the world. And he is greater, and he gives what they can't, like eternal life. So don't let the fear of man put you in a closet as a Christian. May godly fear and reverence lead you into the world just as it led Jesus into the world. Not to be its Savior, but to tell them of the Savior. Let's pray. Father, um, sometimes we sound a lot like his brothers. If only you would do this, Lord. If only you would do this spectacular thing. Father, help us to trust you to know that your way is better than the ways that we imagine and come up with. And that uh, you're more concerned with our obedience, not our success, not a spectacle, not our safety. Help us, help us really to take this to heart. So that in those moments when we do find ourselves kind of at odds with the world, that uh, we remember that that's okay. That it is not the end of our personal world. But it may be part of how you have chosen to testify about the fact that what Jesus offers is greater than the pleasures of Egypt. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.